0: Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Um, the bulletin doesn't have the text quite right. That could either be my fault or whoever prepared the bulletin. It doesn't matter. Um, but the text is chapter 1 of Philippians, verses 9 through 11. But I'm going to start reading at the beginning of the epistle, starting with verse 1 and reading down through verse 11. I will be reading and preaching from the New King James. Uh, by the way, I know that your pew Bible is the ESV, and you'll be finding out that there are a lot of things I agree with the ESV on this particular uh, text. So here now, this reading from God's holy Infallible and inerrant word. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in my prayer of mine, making requests for you, all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it, is, as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in all knowledge, excuse me, in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. Let's look to the Lord again in prayer. Our Father, we rejoice that you have given to us your holy word. We are thankful that you have set before us your will. You've also set before us what you desire for us to believe concerning you. So, Father, we recognize that your word is indeed a precious treasure, that you've given it to us through the Holy Spirit who inspired every word of it. Father, we ask now that you would abundantly bless the proclamation of your word. We desire for you to grant to us a true sermon this morning. That you would, by the power of the Spirit, cause your word to go forth in power. And also, Lord, we pray that you would work in the heart of all those who hear this proclamation from your word. Lord, our desire is that no one would leave this place unchanged by the proclamation of your holy word. We ask that this would be a time of your power. Father, we've already confessed our sins to you and even to each other. And Lord, in doing so, we acknowledge that we are sinners and that we need to be changed. So, Father, we pray that you would use your word here today to bring about your desired change in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. During Paul's first Roman imprisonment, he wrote the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And at the beginning of each one of these books, he included prayers for those that he addressed. And this morning, we're going to be looking at the prayer that he offered for the Philippians here that we just read. Now, last time, I was here, we looked at Paul's second prayer for the Ephesians in chapter 3 of Ephesians. And the time before that, it was the first prayer that we find in the book of Ephesians. So I'm continuing, in essence, a series here on these prayers from the prison epistles. And so we're going to be considering that prayer that we read in verses 9 through 11. I frequently just think of Paul as the great missionary preacher. And indeed he was. But he was also a man of prayer. I believe that one of the reasons why we see the gospel advancing so powerfully through this apostle is because he was indeed a man of prayer. And we need to understand that this prayer that we just read in verses 9 through 11, these are inspired words. That means that this prayer not only came from the heart of Paul. This prayer came from the very heart of Christ himself. So understand this. Paul, when he prayed this, he was not just praying for his desire for this prayer to be answered by God the Father. He was expecting Christ himself to want this prayer to desire this prayer to be answered by his own Heavenly Father in the lives of these believers. The prayer contains one petition and then three purposes. And that prayer is for the love in these Philippians to abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Now, this prayer is one in which Paul, we could say also our Savior, he's expressing one of the very great needs of any congregation, but also a need for every individual believer. Understand, Paul is praying for a congregation He believes that they needed to have this prayer answered in their lives corporately as a congregation. So think about that. Think about how that might apply to this congregation. Looking at the petition there in verse 9, where Paul says, And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. There are some who have mistakenly looked at that prayer, that petition, and have thought that Paul is praying for the love of these believers to increase, to abound. I'm sure Paul would be very happy if that took place, but that's not specifically what he's praying for. What he is praying for here is that their love would increase in two essential qualities knowledge and discernment knowledge and discernment someone i know who's professor at a christian college once told the story about coming home from a day of teaching he walks into the house and he knows that the goldfish are not in the goldfish bowl. He's wondering what happened. So he finally sees his little daughter. He said, honey, what happened to the goldfish? And she gleefully said, I set them free, daddy. I set them free. It was a hot summer day. He immediately rushed out of the house to see if he could find those, those goldfish. One of was on the sidewalk and it was cooked. But the other one was on the grass and it was still moving, so he quickly scooped it up and put it back in the goldfish bowl. Now, the problem with the little girl wasn't that she didn't love those goldfish enough. Her problem was she didn't have the knowledge and the discernment to understand that what she did was not good for them. That's the importance of having a love. That abounds in knowledge and all discernment. That's the Apostles' point. And Paul here is, I believe, is referring to love in general. A lot of times Paul, when he's addressing a congregation and he wants them to have a love that is characterized by certain things, or he might even say he wants their love to abound, he'll qualify that. It might be your love for one another or your love for God. Some have thought that Paul here is just referring to himself. He wants the congregation to love him more, express love toward him more. Some say, no, this is strictly just um, love for God. Others, just strictly this is love for fellow believers. I think it's both for God and for fellow believers. It's not to be limited. And love as you would look through the scriptures, you'll recognize it's a very broad concept. It includes such emotions as compassion, enjoyment, desire, affection, adoration, appreciation. In other words, it includes all types of positive regard toward And I should say positive regard or feeling toward others and even sometimes things. Such as loving the truth. The point here is that love really is an emotion. Now, I don't know if you've heard this before, but I've heard people say, oh, no, love's not an emotion. Anybody ever hear that? I hope not, but if you have, recognize that's not true. I've heard and I've seen this in print that love is not an emotion; it's simply meeting the needs of others. Uh, I've also heard said, "Well, no, love can't be emotion because God tells us to love our enemies, and God can't command love." I like the way Leon Morris put it. He says, "Yes, He can." because it's the proper response. Now, I want you to look in your Bibles and flip to Luke, Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Verse starting with verse 36. Probably the best, that's the whole text. That's where the text begins. But I'm going to start at verse 40. This is where Jesus is dining with Simeon, who's a Pharisee. And a woman comes and begins to wipe our Savior's feet with her tears and to kiss his feet. And the Pharisee thinks, this man can't be a prophet because if he were, he would know what kind of woman's touching him. So this is what Jesus says, starting with verse 40. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. There was a certain creditor who had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they had nothing, pay attention to this, and when they had nothing with which to repay, he freely forgave them both. Tell me therefore which of them will love him more. Simon so an answered and said I suppose the one who forgave. Whom, yeah, the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him you have rightly judged. Now wait a minute. How can love be merely meeting the needs of another when we have two creditors who didn't have anything they could pay? Or repay that creditor with. Obviously they would not be able. To meet any of his needs. You follow my point. This is. One of those texts that proves that love is. An emotion. The word here that's translated. Knowledge. Paul prays that their love would abound more and more in knowledge is a word that actually means full, accurate knowledge. Now, I believe that Paul understood that these Colossian believers would understand that they would get that knowledge from the Scripture. And if you look in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 3... Ultimately, we find it's in Christ himself that we have this needed knowledge. For there, Paul describes our Savior as the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the word here for discernment, it's a very important word because it refers really more than just to discernment. It refers to that perception, that moral perception that is needed. For discernment. While I was listening to the Sunday school lesson this morning, the thought that came to me time after time was 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13. That's where we read, (coughs) But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. We need the Spirit to give us that discernment. I mean, I've heard people that I know know better. The Bible is so clear. How can these people not see us? from here? It's so clear. How can people not see it? Because the Lord has to open their hearts. It's just that simple. And it shows that we need. Spiritual perception. Moral perception. Now we know from Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 through 18, that the Philippian congregation was a very loving congregation. And as I said, Paul here is not praying that the amount of their love would greatly increase. But for that love to acquire biblical knowledge and spiritual perception. Notice that Paul adds that little word, all. In knowledge and all discernment. The point here that the apostle is making is that this discernment is needed for every area and every aspect of our lives. It's something he's praying that would be true all across their lives. You see, for love to increase or even to exist without these safeguards would be detrimental to the church and even to our own lives. You see, love that is not biblically informed and spiritually discerning is not merely deficient and defective, it's downright dangerous. Now love, love should flow out of every belie- believer like a river. Just should flow out of us. But what happens if a river overflows its banks? Flooding occurs. Damage occurs. No, the river has to stay within its limits. I'm about to pay maybe shock a few of you, so, but just bear with me, okay? I mean, if, if, if you start thinking, wait a minute, and then you want to quit listening to me, don't do that. But I want you to listen to this very carefully. You are not to love everything and everyone. You might think, what? What? Listen to me carefully. Listen to this from Psalm 139, verses 21 through 22. This is what the inspired author, King David, wrote. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do not... Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Don't come after me because I said you're not to love everybody. That's David's testimony. That's intended to be an example to us. And you might be thinking, oh, wait a minute, that's Old Testament. That kind of ties in with the lesson this morning. That's Old Testament. We don't have to worry about that yeah. Because after all, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5:44, love your enemies? He sure did. Is there a contradiction here? No. You see, what David is talking about in Psalm 139 is his hatred for those who hate God. He's not talking about personal enemies. He sees anyone who is an enemy of God to be his enemy. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44 Jesus is talking about our personal enemies, And we are to love them. Listen to this from Psalm 511. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violates his soul hates. You're thinking, God hates? No. Yes. Psalm 5.5. 5. God hates all the workers of iniquity. What? Yes. I know that's not popular. I know it's not. But it's true. And if you're going to come after me about teaching this and preaching this from the pulpit, bring your scripture. R.C. Sproul made the comment about the same God loves a sinner but hates the sin. And his comment was to the sinner, don't take any comfort in that. Because God's not going to send your sin to hell. He's going to send you to hell. Sometimes love has to be tough. If you're a parent, you know that. If you're not a parent, when you do become one, you will learn this. Listen to this. Paul closed 1 Corinthians with these words. Listen to these. My love, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. What an interesting way to end it. A letter that's so full of rebuke. So much exposure to their sin. But see, Paul's love for these believers would not allow him To be silent regarding their sin. And Paul's love for the Corinthians. Was guided. By knowledge. And spiritual perception. It's not loving. To help someone who refuses to help himself. Paul wrote in Second Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 10. If anyone will not work, neither let him eat. It's not loving to avoid hurting someone's feelings by being silent about their sin or failing to offer constructive criticism. Psalm 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of friends the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Those are the kind of friends I want to have around me. I want the kind that are saying, Sid, I need to talk to you about something. something I need to talk to you about. I don't know if you're aware you're doing it, but you, I need to talk to you about it. Those are the kind of friends I want to have. Someone who loves me enough to realize I need some correction. You remember what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 5? He talked about speaking the truth in love. The problem is we've got a lot of people speaking the truth. But is it in love? Is it in love? Let me ask you this. Is there someone that you need to go to and point out a sin or a shortcoming? Meditate on Think about that for a while, especially as we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. It is not loving to fail to discipline a disobedient child. I used to work with the youth at a church in Anderson, South Carolina. And one of the young men made a profession of faith. But he struggled to obey the Lord. Because his parents never made him accept the word no. They never restrained him. Never restrained him. And even for un-Christian, non-Christian parents, to not properly discipline a child, that's not going to do the child any good. But what we need to look at next is Paul's three purposes for why these believers and why you and I need to have our love abound in biblical knowledge and spiritual perception. The first one. Notice how he begins, verse 10. That you may approve the things that are excellent. That you may approve the things that are excellent. A more literal translation would be, That you might test the things that differ. That you might test the things that differ. His point is that they needed to have this increase of knowledge and spiritual perception so that they would be able to test the the things that differ morally. Is this morally right or is this not? We all recognize that the world's reasoning is horribly deficient. The fall has caused mankind not to be able to think well at all. That's why if someone is caught crushing the egg of a bald eagle, he's going to be slapped with a heavy fine. But there's people in this country who think it's okay. To kill a baby in the womb just before it's born. Some even think it's okay to kill that baby just after it's been born. Now, that's just crazy. I want you to listen to this from Robert Johnstone. He was a Scottish Presbyterian. Lived in the 1800s. This is what he wrote about this purpose. In this clause of his prayer, Paul has in mind, I apprehend, the facility of distinguishing Christian virtue from all counterfeits, of seeing in an apparent conflict of duties what present duty really is, of discerning where excess begins in that which up to a certain point is useful and innocent of deciding accurately, which of two ways of pursuing Christian work is better of avoiding, avoiding moral pitfalls. And here it is. Listen to this of habitually saying and doing the right thing at the right time, in the right way, and thus steadily growing ever like Christ. Wow! I feel about this this big when I, I feel about this big when I read that. But that's what Paul is getting at. That these people need to have this increase of knowledge and spiritual perception in their love. So they will have the ability to test the things that differ morally. Of being able to, again, of habitually saying and doing the right thing at the right time, in the right way, and thus steadily Growing ever like Christ. Have you heard the expression, well, that's a sticky wicket. I've got a friend who's a Brit. And he'll talk about that, you know, one of these real dilemma things. Well, that's a sticky wicket. Well, we run across those, don't we? In fact, one of the reasons why I appreciate being a Presbyterian is if I have... A concern. I don't know what to do about something. There may be something going on, and I'm not sure what's the best course of action. I can always contact a fellow presbytery or minister in my presbytery and say, "Hey, I need some advice here." One time, when I was going once a month to a church in Wilmington, uh, one of the ladies in that church asked me her advice. He asked me for my advice. Her unsaved daughter was about to marry her live-in boyfriend. And a minister that she knew advised her, don't go to that wedding. Absolutely do not go to that wedding. But I knew she felt uneasy about that, so she asked me. And I pointed out to her that her daughter was not a believer. And therefore she would not be violating the prohibition of a believer marrying an unbeliever. I also pointed out to her that her daughter and her boyfriend would be legitimizing their relationship. And then I also pointed out to her that not going to the wedding would undoubtedly result in the alienation of that daughter who she was trying to witness to And then also witnessing to her daughter's new husband. Now, there's an interesting thing. Two different ideas. One minister says, no. By the way, I wasn't ordained at the time when I gave her that advice. Sometimes it's not easy to discern these things. And I could tell you horror story after horror story just like you could about there's this situation happening in this church and this is what the elders did. And I think they were wrong or I think they were right. But look at the second purpose. The second purpose here is that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. This second purpose is advancing the first. It's not a Parallel, like two different purposes, but these are moving everything forward. He says that he is desiring that as a result of their being filled or their abounding with more and more knowledge and spiritual perception is that they would be sincere. Now, that's not a very good translation. Uh, If I remember correctly, I think the ESV actually got this right. They have pure. Yeah, it translates that word pure. That's actually what Paul's getting at. It's not sincere. If you look up the English word for sincere, you're going to get some interesting definitions, such as without deceit, pretense, or hypocrisy. Well, that kind of fits the context. But what Paul is getting at here is he's desiring for them to have moral purity. The problem with the word sincere is sometimes it's used in the sense of, well, at least he was sincere. You ever hear that one? Many. Well, at least he meant well. That's not what Paul's getting at. Paul here is desiring for their moral purity. But then he goes on, and I think this kind of, he's developing that idea when he says, and without offense till the day of Christ. The word here that's translated till in my New King James is really better to be translated as for. If you have the ESV in front of you, you'll see that's what's there. For the day of Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is that we should live our lives in expectation of the second coming. We should live our lives with that expectation. 2 John chapter 8, excuse me, 2 John 1st 8. This is what we read. Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for but that we may receive a full reward. And then as he moves on, beginning with verse 11, when he says being filled with the fruits of righteousness, he's here talking about how is it that we can be without offense good way of translating the beginning of verse 11 would be by being filled with the fruits of righteousness. By being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Of course, when we understand what righteousness is, the moral standard is love God. And as we heard in Sunday school today, The doctrine of justification by faith alone doesn't do away with the law. It establishes it. But I want to point you to is those words that follow, which are by Jesus Christ. The fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. We had a good Sunday school lesson today that had that dealt with that problem. The problem being that so many think that they can do righteous acts apart from the work of the Spirit and with apart from Christ. <clears throat> the same minister who told the story about the the goldfish. I was at a installation service in one of our OPC works, and the minister made this remark: that there are too many reformed pastors who preach and are. And I'll get it. There are too many reformed pastors who preach an Arminian view of sanctification. Yeah, even Presbyterian reform. If a minister points you to your duty, and there's plenty of places in the scripture where you see that. But if he gives you the impression you can do that by the sheer force of your will, you might want to just vote him out. If you can. Are you following me on this? I mean, that's legalism. I was raised in that kind of stuff. I didn't get offended when you, when the study school teachers started talking about, you know, negative about fundamentalists, I was raised in fundamentalist circles. The point is, being raised, my, my wife similar background, it, basically what we heard was a do-it-yourself, yes, you can, you can do it religion. No emphasis upon the grace of God transforming our lives through the power of the Spirit. So make note of that. The fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. I mean, He's the one that produces those works of righteousness in us. And then we have the final purpose. He says, to the glory and praise of God. Now, that final statement of purpose is most directly connected to the entire preceding clause. But I believe Paul would have us to understand this is also the third goal, the third purpose of that prayer for these believers' love to abound in biblical knowledge and spiritual discernment. You see, that's the ultimate goal. is to bring glory and praise to our God. Glory refers to the manifestation of God's greatness. Praise Refers to the declaration, our declaration of His greatness. I want you to listen to these words that are from a sermon by Robert Johnstone. Love is the grand, sanctifying, ennobling, beautifying principle of the Christian soul. It is, in truth, itself the sum of moral excellence. For all forms of holy feeling and holy action are but various manifestations of love to God and to man. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The end of the commandment is love. Out of a pure heart, out of a good conscience, and of faith unfeigned, God is love. And therefore, to be full of love is to be like God. I agree with that statement. But as important as love is in the heart of the believer, and that cannot be overemphasized, I do not believe, unless it's overemphasized to the point that one fails to recognize that love needs to be Held within certain limits. Love must abound. In biblical knowledge. And in all discernment. My dad once told this, told me the story about a man who had a little puppy. And he just loved that little puppy so much. That the man just couldn't stand the idea of cutting off his puppy's tail. He just couldn't stand the idea. So out of love for his puppy, he decided to cut off the tail an inch at a time. I sure hope that's not a true story. But that's what my dad told. What's the point? You may be a very loving person, and I hope you are. In fact, I this is a very loving congregation. That's one of the reasons why I like coming here. But here's the point. You may be a loving person, but without biblical knowledge and spiritual discernment, you may and most likely will do more harm than good. But understand this also. Without knowledge and discernment abounding within your love, you will also fail to fully fulfill the three purposes that Christ has set forth in this text through Paul. You will fail to properly test the things that differ morally. You will lack moral purity and become a stumbling block to others because of not being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ. And you will fail to properly bring glory and praise to God. I urge you to pray this prayer for yourself. Pray for others you, you know might need it. But I pray. For this congregation. I pray for you. That your love may abound still more and more. In knowledge and all discernment. That you may test the things that differ morally. That you may be morally pure. And without offense for the day of Christ. Because of having been filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this text. And Father, we acknowledge that we need to be a loving people, but we also recognize our love needs to have certain qualities. Lord, grant us that our love would abound in biblical knowledge and in spiritual discernment. And we ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.